I would invite you to turn in God's Word to Colossians chapter 2 as we continue on with our moving through this book of Colossians. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you, it's going to be page either um, 924 or 983, depending on which copy you're using there. And as Tim mentioned at the beginning of the service, we have a time available as it's the third Sunday for young ones, grades six and below. Uh, So for those of you kids that are going to go be a part of that and those who are helping to teach and lead, God bless you as you're uh, dismissed and and enjoy that time. They're always welcomed and and certainly encouraged to remain in here for families that desire, but uh, this is a time that is likewise available. So we're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and you see the title of the sermon, Walking in Christ Jesus the Lord. And at the end of chapter 1 in Colossians, you may have been with us last week as we looked at that passage in verses 24 to 29, uh, Paul was talking about there both or, or, or the suffering and the stewardship and the power of his Christ-exalting mission. That's what he addressed at the end of chapter 1. And everything that he spoke of there really leads into the thoughts of chapter 2. The chapter divisions are not inspired, and this is a place where the thought just carries right in uh, to what is found there at the beginning of chapter 2. And here he's going to be talking about his great struggle in his Christ-exalting mission. So let me read our passage. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 in Colossians 2. Let me read it, and then I'll lead us in prayer as we ask for the Lord's help. So Colossians 2, let's hear God's powerful and eternal word, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And this is the word of the Lord. So let me lead us in prayer as we look to him for help. Our Father, we would again pray that you would move by your mighty hand and your outstretched arm to do the work you desire to do in each one of our hearts. And by your spirit and through your word, even now, Father, please search us and teach us and transform us to be more like Jesus and encourage and strengthen us to that end. Father, please help me by your powerful energy to faithfully and to clearly proclaim your word for your glory in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. Well, it's been said by many that living the Christian life, which means to walk in obedience to God's good commands in Christ, that living the Christian life is not just hard and difficult, 
but it is utterly, humanly impossible. And indeed it is, apart from God's abundant provision and help in Jesus Christ. And for any of us who are Christians, who have been saved by God through Christ, transferred to his kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness, we are now at war with the enemies that we were once enslaved to. Enemies that are far too great for us to do battle with on our own. We're at war now with our own indwelling sin, our flesh. We're at war with the idols and the ideologies and the philosophies of this dark and rebellious world. And we are at war with Satan and his demons themselves. Satan, the one who is the scheming and deceiving father of lies, as Jesus identifies him in John chapter 8. And so we face strong enemies from within and strong enemies from without. And all of that would threaten to undo us, as Martin Luther says in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But with such overwhelming foes and enemies, the question then becomes, how is it that any Christian, and that us as Christians collectively, how is it that we can faithfully endure in obeying God, given these relentless and overwhelming enemies that we face. And God's word in our text this morning, verses 1 to 7 of Colossians 2, really answers this question. And the very clear, the very concise, evident answer is found there in verse 6, and it embodies the title of the sermon, to walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. That's how we endure. That's how we persevere. That's how we prevail over all of the enemies that surround us and that are even within us in our own indwelling sin, and that is to walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. And Paul's words that are here in the beginning of chapter 2, with these words, he's closing out his introduction to this whole letter. And he's really transitioning to the main body that will follow through the rest of the letter. And what we find in verses 6 and 7 in our passage, uh, this is really the hub or the hinge of the entire letter. In other words, everything from chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 5 is really introduction. And then beginning with verse 6 and this transitional statement that Paul says in verses 6 and 7, uh, it leads into the rest of the letter, the main body of the letter. And so the command that is there in verse 6, which, by the way, is the first imperative in this letter of Paul, the command to walk in Christ Jesus the Lord is not only at the heart of the entire letter, but it's at the very heart of the Christian life. Everything in Paul's introduction builds up to this command, and then everything else that follows flows from it. And so walking in Christ Jesus the Lord, as I said, it's not just the heart of this letter. It really is the heart of the Christian life and all of the significance, all of the implications of what that means. And so this is really the main point of everything we're going to see this morning. Again, it's very evident. It's very obvious. But let me just say it this way. It's this, to always walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. 
to always walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. And again, we hear that very explicit command in verses 6 and 7. But with what Paul says in verses 1 to 5 that lead up to that command, he provides three encouragements that really undergird and support his command to walk always, to always walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. And I call these encouragements, three encouragements, because of what Paul says in verse 2 about why it is that he's telling the Colossians how it is he struggles for them. Look at what he says there in verse 2. He's telling them this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And so Paul is saying that because the hearts of God's people have been knit together, they've been united together in life in Christ and in love, which has come through faith in Christ, because this has happened, he's aiming to encourage them all the more. And the sense of encourage there has to do with comforting, strengthening, exhorting them. He's wanting to bolster them all the more in order for them to continue to always walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. He wants them and God wants us who belong to him to experience the full assurance of knowing Christ and all that Christ is and all that Christ has done and all that Christ has called us to. And so Paul doesn't just give the command in verses 6 and 7 He's giving the encouragement for why the command is so vital and why it is so imperative for us to follow. And it's interesting when you think about it, this is Paul's pastoral heart desiring to bring the hearts of God's people into the very heart of God in Christ for them to experience the fullness of it. And this is God's heart for us. And for every believer, this ought to be our heart for one another as well to encourage one another to come into the full, assured experience of all of God's heart in Christ. And so what I want to do then is walk through these three encouragements that Paul gives in verses 1 to 5, which again now culminate in his command to always walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. And so we'll look at each of these encouragements, and then we'll unpack that command in verses 6 and 7. So here we go. Here's encouragement number one. Here's encouragement number one. And let me summarize it this way. Fight the hard fight of faith. That's Paul's first encouragement. Fight the hard fight of faith. And this is what I believe is implied with what he says in verse one and what he describes. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And notice he's concerned for all the people of God. Laodicea was a city that was relatively close, probably 10 or 11 miles from where Colossae was. And he's making reference to believers there, but he's making reference to anyone in the area who has never seen him face to face as the majority of these Colossian believers had never seen him. He's concerned for all of God's people. 
Now, you may remember in verse 29 of chapter 1, in, in what Paul said that, again, leads directly into the thought of chapter 2. In verse 29 of chapter 1, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And what he's referring to there, what he's toiling for, for is to be proclaiming Christ, whom he speaks of in verse 28. He says, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what he's burdened for, to be preaching Christ, to be teaching, to be warning so that people would not only profess faith in Christ, but would grow and mature and come to full completion in Christ. And so he says, this is what I'm toiling for and what I'm working hard for, giving strenuous effort for, and what I'm struggling for. And so he uses that word struggle in verse 29 of chapter 1, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then that's the same uh, form of the word that he picks up in verse 1 of chapter 2. I want you to know how great a struggle I have. And that term is a very, very, very intense term. In fact, the Greek word that is used is where we get our English word agony. And so he's saying, I am in agony. I am agonizing. I am working hard. And it's a, it's a term that gives the sense of, of the context of either a military conflict or an athletic contest. And it carries the idea of working to the point of weariness. I'm fighting. I'm fighting. And for Paul, he's ultimately fighting the fight of faith. And remember, Paul is writing this while he is in prison. And so he's wanting God's people to understand ultimately that he's fighting the fight of faith. And I think implicit to that is not only in his own example as he just wanted to draw attention to himself, but he's wanting to spur on believers to understand that this same struggle, this same toil is part and parcel of what the Christian life involves. It involves the hard fight of faith. Now, we know that Paul is very concerned about the faith of God's people. He says in the very, near the very beginning of the letter, in, in verse 4 of chapter 1, he commends them and he's thankful to God for them because he says in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 5 of chapter 2, it ends on that very same note. He's, he's rejoicing in seeing their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. Christ. So sort of embedded and implicit to what he's sharing in speaking of his own great struggle on behalf of God's people is he wants them to be encouraged to fight the hard fight of faith. And you say, well, what is that struggle? What does it involve? Like, what did Paul do in his struggle? Well, one aspect of that is he's writing to them. He's pouring out his heart to them to further encourage them and to protect them and to instruct them and to warn them. No doubt he's also praying for them, even as he's told them in the first part of chapter 1, how he's both giving thanks to God for them and praying for them. In fact, over in chapter 4, verse 12, he makes reference to Epaphras, who was a man who was from Colossae and who first brought the gospel uh, to the Colossians. And Paul says there in chapter 4 that Epaphras is struggling for you always in prayer. So certainly this struggle involved prayer, but no doubt it also involved exhortation and instruction and confrontation and correction and sacrifice. 
It was a complete and comprehensive sense of struggling. I think of parents who are striving to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's hard work, isn't it? (laughs) It's never-ending. It's continual. And there's an ongoing struggle at every level, both spiritually and emotionally and physically and, and just relationally. It's an ongoing challenge and a struggle. I think there's that sense of the struggle that Paul is talking about. And so he is fighting the hard fight of faith, and he's encouraging God's people to fight the hard faith, uh, hard fight of faith as well. And not only is he fighting that, but he's also encouraging uh, them to know God's strength in that. That's part of what he prays for them earlier in chapter 1. He's, he's wanting them to know God's strength and God's provision. So in the same way that he says that he's toiling and struggling and yet depending upon God's energy and mighty power in him, he wants believers to experience that as well. And the fight of faith is hard because of the opposition that we face. As I've already mentioned, our own indwelling sin, the world that is around us, and all of the lies of Satan, and those things which Paul will identify uh, in verse 4 as plausible arguments. We face all of that. Our day is no different than Paul's day in the sense that we live in this fallen world. And until the Lord Jesus returns, this is part of what we face. And so corporately, not just individually, but corporately, we are to fight the hard fight of faith. And this is the first encouragement that he gives. And even as Paul exemplifies, maybe a tangible, specific point of application for us is just to be reminded, this is why it's so important that we pray for one another. Even as Paul exemplifies at the beginning of chapter 1, so we ought to be praying for one another, as so many do, and it's just an encouragement to keep doing so, because the fight of faith is hard. The fight of faith is hard. And this leads to the second encouragement, and, I, and um, I might ask maybe just, Sam, maybe a little bit of air going. It's just warm up here. I know I'm kind of moving around and all, but just for the sake of, uh, so I don't fall asleep. That would not be good. If you fall asleep, that's between you and the Lord, but if I fall asleep, that's not a good thing. So, so the first encouragement, fight the hard fight of faith. Here's the second encouragement. Seek the treasures hidden in Christ. Seek the treasures hidden in Christ. And I believe this is the implicit encouragement that comes out of what Paul says in verses 2 and 3. He says, I'm struggling greatly that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, there's a mouthful that Paul is saying there, and as he often does, he's piling up truths and concepts and realities. And, and he's just overwhelmed with this. But I think implicit to it is this encouragement that as God's people, we are to continually be seeking the treasures that are hidden in Jesus Christ. Now, with what Paul says, this really flows, as everything else does, as I've already sort of alluded to, from his prayer back in chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. And let me just read what he says there uh, so we're reminded, so we see how this is unfolding thematically in the heart and in the mind of Paul. 
So verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see how he's already introducing this, this call and this command to walk in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so do you see, even as he's telling them how he's praying, those very same themes and focuses of his prayer are now what are bound up in the matters that he is encouraging of them. And it's connected with his command and his call for them to walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why elsewhere in chapter 1, Paul has said so much about the supremacy and about the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with these statements in verses 2 and 3, it's sort of a summation of everything that he has said earlier in chapter 1. And what he's doing is emphatically declaring the unique and the exclusive and the comprehensive and the inexhaustible supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so his encouragement is for believers to reach, to continue to seek, to continue to press forward to all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And this is what he wants them to seek and to be pursuing. Now, Paul has also already spoken and used this term mystery in relation to Christ as, a, as, as God's mystery is now revealed in Christ. He's already used this back in chapter 1 also. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And by mystery, he, he simply but profoundly means something that is only known if God reveals it. And which he says there in verses 26 and 27, God has now revealed these things in Christ. And that's what he's echoing here in chapter 2 as well. God has revealed these matters in Christ. And then Paul says that all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge are hidden in Christ. And he says this because it becomes evident in what he goes on to say a little bit later that he's concerned that the Colossian believers are going to be drawn into the false wisdom and the false knowledge of deceitful, plausible arguments that he knows they're going to be exposed to. And so that's why he's going to go on and say what he does in verse 4. And so he's wanting to say in a positive way, all of the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. And this pairing of wisdom and knowledge, this has to do with God's truth and God's reality of how things really are and how things really work. 
And Paul's making clear, and God's making clear, that all, notice the the comprehensiveness, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, they are hidden only and exclusively in Christ. And so therefore, seek the treasures hidden in Christ. That's the implicit call, the implicit encouragement. Now, the sense of seeking here, think about it, if you were seeking treasure, if you were seeking something that you deemed as valuable, the intensity and the effort with which you would do it, you would pursue it, you would plan, you would prioritize, you would search it out, you would dig it up, you would ransack that for which you saw as valuable. It's this very imagery and this very sense of intensive seeking Uh, that Solomon uses in Proverbs chapter 2, where he speaks about the pursuit of wisdom. And we understand and recognize that this wisdom that is bound up in all that is being expressed through Solomon, wisdom in contrast to foolishness, wisdom in the fear of of the Lord in contrast to foolishness in rebellion against him, that this wisdom is ultimately now um, brought to fulfillment, personified in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to what we find in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, in this sense of, of ransacking, this sense of intensive seeking. He says, My son, Proverbs 2, verse 1, If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And in so many words, what Paul is saying is, is, is in essence everything that Solomon is talking about here is found in Christ. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all of God's truth and reality of the way things really are, are found in Christ and Christ alone. So seek the treasures that are hidden in Christ. They're to be found there. To know those treasures is to know Christ, so seek them. That's really behind, back to the book of Colossians, what Paul is going to say a little bit later in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Listen to what he says there. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek, there it is, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You see, Paul's building on everything that he's been saying. And if you and I as God's people, as he was burdened for for the Colossians, become convinced that Jesus Christ is the supreme king of all creation and that he is the supreme head of the church, and that in his supremacy, he is absolutely sufficient, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him, then we ought to seek him in a manner that is reflective of that, and that that's expressed in our prayers and in our longings and in our dispositions. And this isn't just a privatized matter. It's something we share in corporately. Of course, it has individual implications for how we live, but it also plays into our corporate life and identity. That's what we're doing this morning. We're corporately seeking him to know him and to trust him and to obey him. 
And it bears out the truth that Jesus is all that we need all the time. He is the repository of all wisdom, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we're to have this intentional effort, this disposition that is seeking him and trusting him, seeking the treasures that are hidden in Jesus. That's Paul's second encouragement, not only to fight the hard fight of faith, but in that fight to seek the treasures that are hidden in Jesus. Well, this leads now to his third encouragement, and you see the unfolding of his logic and the burden of his heart, because the third encouragement is this, is this resist the delusions of plausible arguments. Resist the delusions of plausible arguments. And this is what he speaks of in verses 4 and 5, speaking in verse 4 of the dangers and, and the need to resist those plausible arguments, and then in verse 5 in a positive way of what he's encouraged by in their faith. And so he says, verse 4, I say this, and, and by the way, when he says, I say this, the most immediate referent point is what he's just said in verses 2 and 3. But it's likely that he's, he's taking everything from the beginning of the letter up to that point. He says, I'm telling you all of these things so that you'll resist these plausible arguments, so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And then in contrast, verse 5, he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And it's interesting because Paul is, 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 is not overly correcting the Colossians, but he's warning them, he's alerting them to danger that is looming. There's a sense in which spiritually he is vaccinating them so that they'll be aware of the deadly danger of plausible arguments that would delude them, that would deceive them. And the sense of these plausible arguments has to do with false teachings. The New American Standard Version says persuasive arguments. And I like the phrasing of the New International Version. It, it identifies these as fine-sounding arguments. And that kind of is where the rubber meets the road. You know, things that sound, yeah, that sounds pretty reasonable. That sounds pretty good. That kind of makes sense. But you see, what Paul is talking about as God's people, we have to be on the alert. We have to have our antenna up for false teachings, false philosophies, ideologies, etc. And Paul is going to address those in more detail, beginning in verse 8 and following. And we'll be looking at some of the particularities of these things. Suffice to say now that the Colossian culture in that city of Colossae, in that general area, was, as it is in our days, just very pluralistic, very syncretistic. There was a mishmash of all kinds of different false philosophies and ideas, and so there was kind of a smorgasbord that people could talk or could pick from, but it all ultimately was opposed to Christ. It was inconsistent with walking in Christ Jesus the Lord. And again, Paul's going to say more about these things as he moves on. But understand for now, these are arguments and teachings and ideas that ultimately are seductive. That's the nature of their plausibility. They seem reasonable. They seem fine-sounding. They seem like, ah, this is a pretty good thing, and I think we can kind of go with this. 
But in the end, they are arguments that tickle the ears of any of us who listen to them. And they're arguments that play into and that appeal to our selfish, fleshly passions. And so again, Paul is striving to vaccinate believers against any giving into these things. You say, well, what are some examples of those plausible arguments? What do they look like? Well, from a biblical standpoint, let's go back to the book of Genesis chapter 3 because we see what the, what the ultimate source and what the ultimate substance of these plausible arguments are. It begins in Genesis 3 when we read of Satan in the form of a serpent coming into the perfect and good garden that God had created and tempting Eve. And do you remember what the very nature of his temptation is? The very first words we read in verse 1 of Genesis 3. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's the plausible argument. And that plausible argument, the substance and the core of that plausible argument, Satan and the demons have repeated millions and millions of times and millions and millions of ways even to our day today. And it fundamentally begins with that question, did God really say? And at the very tip of the spear of his deception, He's causing doubt and he's causing questions about God's word, what God said and what God meant by what he said, which is what goes on because the woman responds to the serpent, verse 2, and basically says, yes, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And then verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die die. Well, there's a plausible argument. Who wants to die? Who wants to die? Do you see what he's doing? He's presenting to her a very plausible argument. He's tickling her ears. He's appealing to her own fleshly desires. And he goes on to say, verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then she gives in. She buys the argument. She's deluded. And so verse 6, here it is. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Seemed good in her own eyes. And that's what sin is. Being wise in our own eyes and listening to and following the plausible arguments of the enemy that, again, come in myriads of ways and myriads of forms, but we give in and we're deluded and we pay the price. And so you see, Paul, as a wise and a loving pastor, knows that the people of God are under attack, and he knows that for himself. And so he's wanting to alert, wanting to warn them to resist the delusions of plausible arguments. And we need to understand even in our day, and you and I know this by experience, those plausible arguments can come to us in a very personal way. Sometimes they're expressed through friends or family members or co-workers. And they're ultimately, in so many words, 
casting aspersions on what God has said in his word. And at that point, we're faced with a, with a decision. Are we going to listen to what God has said and what God means by what God says? And are we going to trust and submit to him or are we going to buy into the argument? So they can come at that very personal, intimate kind of a level that we have to be alert to. They can also come in a much more public way through the media and just through the world around us. And we even think about in our own day what's, what's, what's tragically just continued to multiply with all of the deception and plausible arguments that are demonic and that are destructive related to gender identity and to the whole LGBTQ plus agenda, everything that is anti-Christ. And we need to lovingly, humbly, boldly, compassionately stand against those plausible arguments. You say, well, how do I discern these things? Well, think about it this way. Any, any argument, any idea, ideology, any philosophy, any opinion you may hear, whether it's at a personal level or at a more public level, ask yourself the question, is the person making the argument... Are they pointing you to know and to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ more as he's revealed in Scripture, or are they pointing you away from that? Scripture is always the authority, and Scripture rightly understood and rightly divided, which requires wisdom and humility and diligence, of course. But is the person, is the argument pointing you to know, trust, and obey Jesus as revealed in Scripture or not? And so we need to resist the plausible arguments in our own day and in our own lives. And this is an encouragement that Paul is giving. And so his positive encouragement, again, is there in verse 5. Though I'm absent in body and I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Those terms that he uses are are likely military terms that are just describing a, a soldier who is ready who is armed and ready. He's at attention, and he's, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing under his commanding officer. And Paul's saying, that's what I'm seeing of your faith, and I want to encourage that so that you'll resist these plausible arguments and so that you won't be deluded, so that you won't be deceived, and so that you won't dishonor the Lord in that. So these are the three encouragements that we see from Paul, to fight the hard fight of faith, to seek the treasures hidden in Christ, and to resist the delusions of plausible arguments. And all of these encouragements now culminate in this central command now that we find in verses 6 and 7, the the hinge, the hub statement of the entire letter, to always walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. So Paul says, verses 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And again, this, this command now, this is the first time he's giving an explicit command, even though there's a number of implicit ones, but it's his first explicit command. It's expressing the burden of what he prayed for them about in chapter 1, And it's expressing the burden of his struggle. This is why he's burdened for them. So he says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, he's talking about when they came to faith in Christ. They had been taught the gospel carefully and thoroughly by Epaphras. Paul makes reference to that in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 1. And they had received Jesus Christ, the Savior and the Lord. Jesus, the one who saves, Christ, the promised Messiah, the one who fulfilled all of God's Old Testament prophecies. And implied by Paul there is that they received him by faith. 
And so he wants them to keep walking by faith. And this sense of walking is is all-encompassing. It's a term Paul frequently uses. You heard me reference it earlier in chapter 1, verse 10, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in every respect. It has to do with all of life, all of the time. It's easy to understand. We don't get by with much in life apart from walking, and and it's all-encompassing. And in the present tense is how Paul uses it here in verse 6, to walk and to keep on walking. It's continuous and it's comprehensive. It involves our affections. It involves our goals. It involves our ambitions. It involves our priorities, our words, our actions, our relationships. Everything is to be governed by knowing and walking with and walking in Christ Jesus our Lord. And throughout the rest of the letter, Paul's going to go into great detail about what this walk looks like. But it means ultimately to walk in the fullness of the hope and the power and the the riches of all that Christ is and all that Christ has done. The one who has redeemed us by his blood, reconciled us to God through his blood, all of his supremacy, all of the riches of who he is, to know him, to live in the fullness of that, to trust him and to follow him, to know that he's supreme, to know that he's sufficient. And here in verse 7, Paul then gives four participles, and I'll just mention these really, really briefly. But he gives four participles that identify and elaborate on what this walk involves. He says, first of all, it means that you have been rooted. And that's in the passive tense, by the way. This isn't something that you did. It's something that ultimately God did, uh, that you've been rooted And that is an agricultural term, of course. It has to do with being planted. And Paul's speaking of it as something that has happened in the past tense. You've, in essence, been planted in the very life of Christ is what the reference point is. You have been planted in Christ. And so continue to remain in him. The next participle, as he says, you are being built up, rooted and built up. And and the sense there is in a present tense, you're continuing to be built up. So now he moves to a construction metaphor, and it's giving the idea of present and ongoing growth as a part of the whole building that God is building. His church, his people, every single one of us are a part of that, but we're continually not only growing ourselves, but we're, we're growing in what God is doing in building this, being built up. And then the next participle, he says uh, that you are built up in him and established in the faith. There's the next participle, established in the faith, just as you were taught. Well, now he goes to probably more of a legal metaphor because this term for being established has to do with that which confirms or validates or gives evidence of the reality of something. And he's affirming, and you see the sequence of this with these various metaphors. You've been rooted, you're being built up, you're being established in the faith. In other words, the validity, the the evidence of your faith is becoming more and more evident. That's what he's talking about. And then the final uh, uh, participle that he uses there at the end of verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. And that's a present active tense. The other three participles are passive, meaning this is what God is doing and has done and is doing in your life through faith. 
But the result, the response, is that you are now abounding in thanksgiving. And this matter of thanksgiving is central to this letter. He speaks about it frequently. He has earlier in chapter 1. He will again in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And it helps us understand that, that part and parcel of always walking in Christ Jesus the Lord means a greater and greater sense of thanking God for who he is, thanking him for his love, thanking him for his mercy, thanking him for his redemption, thanking him for reconciling us, thanking him for giving us his spirit, thanking him for anything and everything, spiritually, materially, all of it. Abounding is the sense of overflowing, overflowing in thanksgiving. And so that's the heart of the command, to always walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. And to be encouraged to do so by fighting the hard fight of faith. It is always a fight of faith, this side of heaven. By seeking the treasures that are hidden in Christ and by resisting the delusions of plausible arguments. And these are the themes and focuses that Paul's going to continue to unfold in the rest of the letter. And as I said a little while ago, make note of the fact that this is a corporate calling. That this is why we gather and this is why we share life and worship together as God's people. Because he calls us together to be praying for one another, helping one another to walk in the fullness of Christ day by day and moment by moment. And praise God for so many ways we see that evidenced among us. And may it continue to spur us on to know him, to walk with him, and to be faithful to all that he has. So praise God. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray it would bear the fruit that you intend in each one of our lives, and and whatever specific ways you would have us to respond, that that would be very clear and evident. Uh, We thank you for the things that you have fed us with, and may you be glorified in the ways in which you would accomplish your purposes in us and through us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.